17. And we're going to continue on the series on Emotional Healthy Spirituality, Part 3. But I'd like to begin by uh, connecting it with uh, what we've been talking about this morning about missions. Because world missions has not always been done in an emotionally healthy way. And often behind the scenes of what looks so wonderful in a history book is not always, always as beautiful when you get on the ground. William Carey was uh, considered the founder of Western missions. In the 1700s, I had a vision from God to leave England and establish one of the first Western missions in India. But his wife was against it, uh, Dorothy, <clears throat> and she refused to go. So he bought his own ticket, and he said, I'm leaving. Fortunately, she or unfortunately, she changed her mind after one of her seven children was born. And uh, she agreed to go to uh, India along with her younger sister. But uh, her health and mental stability weren't very strong. And when their five-year-old uh, died in 1794, she had a breakdown and ended up in a uh, hospital. Uh, it was a very sad situation, really, for the rest of her life. She was considered uh, deranged, and uh, the family was a disaster and a trauma. And uh, William Carey continued on his work, uh, but his family situation deteriorated until she eventually died a, an early death. Another famous uh, missionary was called C.T. Studd, and he was part of what was called the Cambridge Seven that sailed to China in the late 1800s. And he was very wealthy, uh, a brilliant Cambridge scholar, a uh, great athlete, uh, and uh, he was uh, very dedicated to Christ. And his, his model, he had a lot of good models that you'll see quoted in different books, but was, we do not need to be intense. No, I'm sorry, we do need to be intense and our intensity must ever increase. And uh, for him, this meant working 18-hour days, no days off, and no, quote, fun activities. It was the Lord's work he was doing, and no sacrifice was going to be too great for C.T. Studd. And he used to get very angry at Christians that were not sold out for Jesus. Uh, he was so consumed by zeal that he left his wife, who was sick, for 18 years and uh, lived in China. He actually fired some of his family members from the mission because they weren't totally committed and uh, the work that he'd established there was torn apart by some personal controversies. And uh, eventually, he had to be removed from the very mission that he founded at the end of his life. And it's the final one I'll pick out is uh, a world famous one was, is the founder of World Vision, uh, Bob Pierce, who in the 1950s established a great organization today that we know as World Vision to care for poor and needy people around the world. Uh, but the demands of establishing this international work uh, caused him to leave his wife and his children at home as well. And uh, he had a saying that uh, I've made an agreement with God that I'll take care of his helpless little lambs around the world if he'll take care of mine at home. At first glance, it seemed heroic, but God didn't make that agreement with him. So the uh, family did fall apart. He ended up as well separated from his spouse. And one of his three daughters wrote a book about his life uh, called Days of Glory, Seasons of Night, uh, about how one of their children eventually committed suicide. And he himself died a very, very lonely death, isolated from everybody. But I say that because as we sit here and we seek to be faithful to what God's called us to do as a church, we want to walk out a zeal for God, both here uh, in, in New York City as well as around the world, but that is marked by what I'm calling here an emotionally healthy spirituality. And we've talked about the great commandments are to love God and to love our neighbors. That is the heart of all of Scripture, said Jesus. 
and that we're to adore him above all else. No matter what you're going on in your life, that you're adoring God and growing in your love for God. And then secondly, you're loving people, you're cherishing people, you're treating them as value. And uh, as Jesus said, if you're not doing that, the rest of it's not worth much. And uh, as 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, if we have not love, we've got nothing. And Jesus affirmed that. And so we don't want to be like the Corinthian church. We want to watch and learn from history as well as from Scripture that we don't want to be doing these great things for God, having all this faith and moving mountains and miracles and signs and wonders and all this Bible knowledge and missing love. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if we don't have that, we don't have anything. And uh, so last two weeks ago, we started this series, and we talked about the courage to emotionally mature from John 5. Last week, we talked about uh, accepting the gift of our emotions, and we talked about not just how to feel, but how to think about our feelings as we grow into the image of Jesus. And this week, I want to move us into uh, really, into what does it mean to grow into being transformed in the image of Jesus around the theme of living faithfully uh, to yourself, living faithfully your God-given life that uh, he's given you. And uh, really, I, I, would, I would base the whole thing on the life of Jesus. But I know some of you would say to me at the end of this, well, that's Jesus. I know, that's Jesus. But uh, we're followers of Jesus, and he gives us his Holy Spirit to follow him. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, he lived faithfully to the life that God had given him. And we see him at a very early age. He was declared, he was called illegitimate by the neighbors in uh, Nazareth. Nonetheless, he was faithful with God that the Father had given him. We see him living out of a great sense of the Father's hand, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And so even at 12 years old, he, quote, disobeys his parents, uh, in a sense, and he's at the temple talking with the rabbis and the scholars, and he says, and they say, what are you doing here? And he goes, I must be about my father's business. Because he was clear about living out the life that the father had called him to live. We see him very clear about his mission in Luke 4, when he begins to preach the good news to the poor. We see him very clear about going to the cross, about that's what the God had for him, leaving the 12 disciples in charge, but we see him battling his whole life with people who want to get him off course. Satan, from the very beginning, confronts him in the wilderness to knock him off his course of the unique life that the Father had for him. We see the crowds wanting to make him a king. We see the 12 disciples not wanting him to go to the cross. He's got a battle with them. He's got a battle with his family, who's got their agenda for his life, but somehow through it all, he remains true to his life that the Father had given him and to the mission that God had for him. Now, in the same way, that's our, that's our, that's our, our theme today. How do I live faithfully? We're going to talk about really two things. What it means to live faithfully uh, to yourself, and then how do I do it? Okay, but we're going to go to 1 Samuel 17, this great passage, um, and the life of David. I really could have chosen Nehemiah, Moses, so many people in Scripture. I took this story from David and Goliath, which is a well-known one, which is, again, like all of Scripture is so deep, you can preach 10, 15, 20 messages in the same text and all bring out a different biblical truth. But today I want to look at it from the, from the lens of David being faithful to the life that God had uniquely given him and what it's going to mean for us and for you to live faithful to the unique life God has given you. All right, so I'm going to begin at verse 26, but let me summarize it for the sake of time uh, to get up to verse 26. You've got a scene here where you've got the Philistines on one side of a valley and the Israelites on the other. And Goliath is representing the Philistines, and he's coming out over a 40-day period. And he is challenging the Israelites to come out, send a man a battle, and whoever wins that battle, the other nation will be subservient uh, to the winner. And Goliath is a huge, he's seven to nine feet tall, depending on your translation here you've got in front of you. Uh, you know, he's a shack, he's... Uh, you know, Sean Bradley, 
He's gigantic. He's, 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 he's incredibly strong. He's got a, a coat of mail that weigh between 170 to 200 pounds. Uh, he's swirling a spear that weighs uh, 25 pounds, kind of like a cheerleader, like nothing. He's got this massive javelin. He can kill people at a distance. He's invincible. No one's defeated him up to this point. He's got a shield bearer in front of him who can defeat anybody coming their way. Uh, he's got years of experience. And over 40, day, 40 days, it says, he's coming out defying Israel, challenging them and, and, uh, uh, and, and taunting them. Uh, he's cruel, he's brutal, he's gigantic. He's sending a shockwave through Israel, and they're in fear. He's got awesome power. He's arrogant, we call him today. He's a big bully. And Israel, you've got to imagine, the whole army, the professional army, uh, the best they've got is in a trench, and they're terrified. They're anxious, they're, they're immobilized, they're afraid, they're, they're anxious, and they're paralyzed. And so pick it up in verse 26. Here we are. Here shows, shows up little David. David's a teenager. He's, uh, if you're a high school student here, he's probably 16, 17 years old, maybe 18. And his father has sent him to the battle from home to deliver some food to his older brothers. And David's the youngest of seven brothers. And he shows up. And in verse 26, he asks the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and repeated to Saul. And Saul's the king, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. And David says, basically, in verses 34 to 37, I, I can do it. You know, I can do it. God will be with me. And then Saul says, all right, go, and the Lord be with you. And then in verse 38, Saul dresses David in his own tunic. He puts a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his, off his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And then we pick it up in verse 41, when Goliath says to him, I'm sorry, verse 44. Now, verse 41, he says, Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks? And the Philistine curses David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All right. You think you've got problems. All right? Now, I want you to just step and, and pause for a minute and, and put yourself in David's shoes. Because, in a sense, the picture is, is wonderful. Because Goliath and all that's in front of David represent the obstacles before you and me of what it's going to mean for us to live the life that God has given us to live. I mean, David's got obstacles. Look at him. He's got, first of all, his father is the first obstacle, because his father basically just sent him to go deliver some food to his brothers and come home. He's the youngest. How many of you are the youngest in your family? 
You know, I, it's, it's tough to be the baby of the family. You're always the baby of the family. You can be 80 years old, you're still the baby of the family, you know. And the older siblings always have an attitude. And so David, you know, first he shows up, his father, it's not what his, his father did not send him there to fight Goliath and get involved in a battle. So he, he's got that to deal with that. Then he's got his older brother Eliab in, in verse 28. And Eliab, if you look back in 1 Samuel 16, Eliab was very handsome and apparently a, a very, you know, large guy because when Samuel was going to anoint a king, he said, Eliab must be God's anointed because he physically looked like the kind of military guy who should be a king. So, so Eliab's very impressive. And, and Eliab, his oldest brother, just judges him. You know, he judges him of being arrogant, conceited, wicked in heart. You ever been falsely accused? It's very discouraging, especially from your family members. And um, he slanders him and puts David down. Another opposition. Then, then he's got the whole army of Israel. Uh, they're discouraging because none of them are getting up and fight, and they're the professionals. So he's got to deal with that obstacle, that the guys who are dressed with the swords and the armor, they aren't going anywhere. They're, they're afraid and anxious. And then he's got the king, Saul, who discourages him. And, you know, king, what Saul say to him in verse 33? When David says, I'll go, he says, you are not able to go. You can't go. You're only a boy. You're nothing. And... Um, you know, basically, like, get more training and come back. You know, grow up first. And uh, even when David says, I'm going to go, when, and, and Saul says, let me put my armor on you. Go out and fight the way I fight. Not that it's doing much good. And again, that armor doesn't fit because he's trying to, again, fight the way Saul fights, and he realizes, I can't do this. And then on top of all that, you got family, you got father, brothers, army of Israel, Saul. Then he's got Goliath to fight. And Goliath, this, again, the reason this story is such a good one for us is because Goliath represents such a, like a massive force. Like, how many of you have Goliaths in front of you? It's like, ah, yeah! You know, and, 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 and Goliath curses him. You have been cursed? Curses him by his gods, which appear at this moment to be victorious. And says, basically, I am going to eat you for lunch. And uh, remember, remember, Goliath is undefeated. Apparently invincible. Nobody has been able to kill Goliath. And the Philistines are fighting, as a historical note, are fighting with iron uh, weapons. And at this time, all Israel has are bronze weapons. So, so they have inferior weaponry. So, I mean, Goliath is, is again, he's all, uh, all intimidating with, it, with his presence and his power. So, if David goes out there, do you realize if he's going to be faithful to himself, he could get killed? Do you realize that if he obeys God, and is faithful to the life God has for him, if God doesn't show up, he is in big trouble. And not only is he in big trouble, everyone else is going to be a slave to the Philistines. So the, the, the consequences of failure are very much before him. So what he does, he picks up, he goes with his five smooth stones, he picks up, because that's what shepherds were good at. They threw stones to keep their sheep you know, in the right direction. And he probably threw stones all the time. And so what, he's, what he does, he throws his stone to the best of his ability. And uh, he says in verse 46 and 47, a very important verse, he goes, basically he says, to the guy, today I'm going to, you know, you're going to die, he says to Goliath. And the, world is, the whole world is going to know there's a God in Israel. I mean, his whole passion, as he's faithful to himself, that the world would know there's a living God in Israel. And uh, for the battle is the Lord's. And so he takes what he's got, which isn't much. He's a little shepherd boy with, with stones. And he takes it, and he's faithful to his life, and he throws up, and Goliath comes down. 
And what's so amazing about this is, is, is the whole nation reaps the fruit of it. Now, David broke through and was faithful to the life God had given him here in this text. And if you, if you watch David's life unfold, he had some bad days, but he broke through on worship. This guy led the whole nation of Israel into a whole new way of doing worship. They had never had dancers and singers and 24-7 worship in the temple and, and the kind of psalms that he wrote and emotions and, and lavish emotion and all lamenting psalms. And, and uh, I mean, this guy took worship to a whole new place away from tabernacle worship, which was very somber. You know, incense and bells and very quiet. David understood grace. He broke through on a revelation of God about grace, about covenant, about giving, about battle, about hearing God, about the prophetic. It was amazing what David broke through in because as he began to live faithfully to himself, he brought blessing to the whole nation of Israel and a revelation of God. And the principle is this. If you'll be faithful to the life God has given you, you will bless everybody around you. Could you imagine if David did not step out and been faithful to the life God had given him? What would have been the consequences of that? We would not have sung that song we sang in worship from Psalm 84. Do you, have you ever thought through the consequences if you're not faithful to the life God has given you? The, the implications for all the people around you. So let me give you a little definition here because the issue of living faithful to yourself is a spiritual issue and it's also an emotional issue. Because many folks say, yeah, I know that's true, but they do not have the depth of discipleship, which I'm going to call an emotional piece. We talked about that circle, there's different components of discipleship, loving and, and the kind of courage needed for something like this, I'm putting under the emotional piece of it. And for David to step forth, what it looks like, and we see what it looks like to live faithfully yourself, it looks like what David does in this text. It's going against enormous opposition and breaking through for God. But I'm going to give you a little definition here, Okay. And uh, you can get those off the web later. But what does it mean to live faithfully to yourself? I think David demonstrates this quite well. It's to be faithful to your God-given unique life. Remember, God's given you a unique life that he's given nobody else. Nobody is like you. There never has been a person in the kingdom of God or in the family of God like you. You're unique. You have your own specific DNA your own specific fingerprint, you, your own specific eye configuration. You are you. There's nobody with your unique combination of who you are. And God has got a life for you to live. He's made you in his image. He's got something for you. Um, and it's to live faithfully to your unique God-given life, remaining connected. It's a key thing. David could have said, you know what? You Israelites, you're a bunch of bums. I'm becoming a Philistine. So it's remaining connected with people. And yet, not having your reactions or behaviors determined by them. It's a great balance to hold. David did not quit on God's people because they weren't doing very well. He lives faithfully the life God's called him to, but yet he stays connected to them and keeps going with his family. You see, many of us struggle with feeling like we're victims in life. So many things have happened to us. Now, you're not responsible, 100% responsible, for everything that happens to you. But we are 100% responsible for how we respond to what happens to us. So obviously, we go through life, and uh, there are legitimate victims. And some of you in this room, we've had things happen as legitimate victims. You know, whether it's uh, you think of things like genocide or slavery or rape or murder. 
or abuse, emotional or sexual or psychological abuse or betrayals, and things happen to us that we're victims. But there's no sin in being a victim, but there is a sin in playing a victim and saying, I don't have choices. I can't do anything about it. I'm not responsible because of what's happened to me. Now let me give you some, let me, let me try to break this down into very basic day-to-day life to help you understand this little definition of what it looks like to live faithfully to yourself. Let's say after church today, you go out with some friends. And if you're a teenager, maybe you know, you're, you think of some high school friends, you're, at, you're, at, uh, you know, you're eating lunch. And maybe you really admire these people. And you realize, after, you realize as the conversation is going along that you're saying things to impress them. You're, say, you're kind of changing the way, you're changing who you are because you want them to be impressed with you. That's not being faithful to your God-given life. You're reacting and your behavior is being determined by them. Let's say someone asks you for help and you automatically say yes, even if you don't want to. And you don't even think it's the best thing. You're not being faithful to your God-given life. Or you avoid certain topics with people because you know they might judge you. So now you alter your conversation because you don't want them to think badly of you. Or you hear gossip or an inappropriate joke, but you're afraid to speak up because of what people might think about you. You're not living faithful to your life. Or someone, someone says, well, hey, let's go to lunch at Wendy's after church. Or, hey, this afternoon, let's go to Central Park. But really, you don't want to go to Wendy's. You want to go to Burger King. And you don't want to go to Central Park. You want to go to Flushing Meadow. But you don't say anything. And you go to Wendy's. And then you go to Central Park. But inside, you have a knot in your stomach. saying, I don't even want to be here. And you're angry the whole day and have an attitude. As has been said properly, to live unfaithfully to yourself is to do others great damage. Because when you don't live faithfully to what God has given you as a life to lead, you end up being a grump. Love doesn't flow out of you. Resentment does. And all kinds of things that aren't from the Holy Spirit. You know, this past week, uh, on my day off, I, Jerry and I, were gonna, we, were gonna, we went to paint one of our rooms in our house. And so I was tired when I woke up. She was downstairs doing something, and I decided I needed some time to rest and be alone for a while. So uh, I said to Jerry, I'm going to start at 12, I yelled out. Now I'm feeling pressure because I'm thinking, she's probably wondering, how is this all going to get done if he starts at 12? But I realized if I start at 12, if I start at 9 o'clock, I will have not had a break. I knew it would go the whole day. And I knew I'd be a grouch. So I said, you know, I'm going to start at 12. And uh, ultimately, it was a very loving thing to do. And you know what? She was wondering, how is this all going to get done? But she didn't say anything. And then as we started painting, about quarter to three, I started getting really tired. So I said, I think I'm going to take a nap. (laughs) And so, of course, you know, if you know Jerry, Jerry's, you know, a pretty energetic person. And I'm thinking, you know, it's my day off. I'm really tired. I want to take a nap. And I'm thinking, she's going to say, what a lazy bum. <laughs> but I'm mind-reading, because I don't know what she's thinking. But I took my nap anyway. And she was like, fine. Afterwards, she was great. But do you understand that I could have did that little day off resentfully? Because the truth is, you know what? I'm not, you know, the Hulk. 
I needed to relax on my day off. You know, I was going to do some work. But I needed to feel like it was a real day off. Or else I would have had such an attitude towards her later in the day. So I want you to understand that when you don't live faith with yourself, what God made you to do, it's ve- you're not, you end up, it really impacts the people around you. Because you're not stewarding what God's given you. And you end up not loving people well and blessing them. You know, someone says, can I copy your homework? You don't want them to copy your homework. What do you do? You, 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 don't, you could say, I'm not really comfortable you copy my homework, you know, but you end up giving it to them because, again, I don't want the, the conflict. Or someone says, I want to borrow something from you, you know, maybe your car or something like that, or, and, and, and you really don't want them to borrow it. And then they say, well, you are a Christian, aren't you? And you're like, again, you've got to be faithful to who you are and remain connected, but not having your reactions or behaviors determined by them. And so, again, this can cut a lot of different ways. You know, whether it's, you know, you sacrifice yourself because you just want peace and keep everybody happy. Or some folks require everybody to agree with them. And, and they're, they're determined, like, everyone's got to think like I think. And you know, there's one, actually, two, two story I read. The guy was a Republican, a Christian, and uh, a staunch Republican. And his daughter, as she grew up, became a Democrat. And she started campaigning for every Democratic candidate that came down the pike. He went crazy. He's fighting every dinner, you know. You know, God's, you know, you know whole thing. And uh, she stood her ground. She wasn't going to move. And, uh, and he tried talking her out of it. Did not work. He said, no daughter of mine is going to think like that. And she finally said, you're not going to change me. And he said, all right, if you vote for so-and-so in this election, you've got to move out. Again, there was no ability. He should you know, live his own God-given life and let her live hers. You know what? She moved out. And at the time at which I read it, the relationship still had not been resolved. I can go on. But the point is, when you're having in these relationships, these conflicted feelings, and you feel terrible afterwards, again, whether you gave in or didn't give in or whatever, and you, and, and you, part of this is the image of God in you that it's like an oil light going on in a car of saying, something's not right. And so the question is, as we look at David, we say, look at David, what, what a, wow, how did he break through all this? What an incredible model for us. So I want to spend my remaining moments here, and I want to talk about the second part of the message, which is very simply, how do I live faithful to myself, or life that God has given me? And um, you see, when you became a Christian, you began that process, hopefully. You became a Christian, accepted Christ, you made a splash, discovered God's grace, and now you begin to walk a different life. But to really go all the way with this and uniquely live out the life God has given you and destined you for takes, friends, enormous courage. And I broke it down here for the best I could do here into three little basic uh, components. And they all have the word listen to start, all right? The first is to listen from within. Remember, God's made you in his image, so you reflect God, and he's placed the Holy Spirit inside of you. Listen from within to your God-given true self. Listen from within to your God-given true self. It, and, and I've quoted this before. It's a Hasidic tale uh, by a rabbi called Rabbi Susia. And he says, as an old man, he said this, In the coming world when you meet God, God will not ask you, why were you not Moses? He will ask you, why were you not you? He's going to say, why did you not live out the life that I gave you? that I scripted for you. Why were you trying so hard to live out a life like Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Joe or Susie or Harry? 
Why didn't you live the life that I uniquely gave you to live? And it was Thomas Merton, a great Trappist monk. He's written many books. He used to talk a lot about true self and false self. And, and he, he was a monastic, and he spent great deals of time alone. And, and he, he said that walking with God is the process of shedding all of this, he called it, this pretend, this false self, these lies, these voices we bought into about who we should be. And communing with God, true communion, authenticity leads you to a place where your true self emerges. And you are free from the people around you They're, and reacting and behaving in a way that only pleases them. You remain connected, but you're truly becoming yourself. But we spend so much time, friends, straining to be somebody else or to live a life somebody else expects of us. And it requires a listening from within. To get this. I, I, look, for me, a little simple example is, for those of you who know me well who work in the office, I, I am much more on the creative bent. Drama, you know, music, arts. I love that stuff, you know, creating and writing. But, you know, running, the, the management of an like like organization and job descriptions, and, and like Jim and others will tell you on our staff and campaigns and all that stuff, it just, not only does it do nothing for me, it's, it's just not how I'm built. And so I can sit through a day of meeting, and I know my limit. I, I can sit through one day, and that's about it, of meetings, because God just didn't build me that way. Many of you know what that's like. Maybe you're, you're an introvert, and you realize you're always an extrovert. Well, it, it, it's, it kills you, because very often we don't respect our God-given nature. It's like if you're a builder. You know, you've got wood, and you've got steel, and you've got stone, and respecting the material you've got as you build something. Imagine trying to build something with, with uh, wood, and you're using steel. It just doesn't work real well. God made you a certain material. He gave you a certain person that you are. When we violate that, and we begin to live a life that's not what God gave us, it's very difficult. That's why one of the, one of the ways that we listen from within is through failure. Because as we fail at relationships, as we fail in experiences, as we fail in our careers, you know what? It's through that trial and error you realize that's not who God made me. And I begin to kind of catch how it is that who I really am, what gives me life. And that's why depression, and I'm not talking about now you know, biochemical depression. Depression very often is a gift. As God's way of saying, come on back, you're off track here. I'm trying to bring you back. And God's pushing you to the ground so you'll look up and listen to him. Because we're trying to live lives that aren't ours. So we end up medicating our pain through addiction and all kinds of other things. But again, it can be small where you, you say yes to somebody, but you really meant no, and afterwards you feel miserable. But the great thing is you learn from it. You say, yeah, why did I say yes? I didn't want to go to Central Park you know, with 20 people. I wanted to go and be by myself and read and be with God or whatever. You know, I, did, I didn't want to go to this big party in Central Park. But you messed up. But your failure is part of the way you're learning to listen from within to be your God-given true self. You know, as you know, if you do this, you're going to cause some anxiety for other people and some disappointment for some other people. That is part of the package. Um, but again, you remain connected. You don't cut them off. I, for me, another just final thing here, and there's so much I could say on this point, but I, I want to move on. Uh, it, a very key thing is, I believe, to monitor, just monitoring your anxiety level. You're fine, like, like you're, 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 you're anxious, and you start blaming people. Or again, you start appeasing people. You start trying to fix everybody. You start projecting onto somebody. I, I, and, and part of this listening is saying, wow, why am I flipping out? Why is all this happening inside of me? And I pause and I slow down. I begin to listen 
And I say, oh, God, what are you doing here? What's going on? What's that about? But it's choosing, friends, to listen from within to what is going on. And God, what is, who have you made me? And what does it look for me to live out and be faithful to the life you've given me to live? I like when Frederick Buechner has this great quote. He says, the way you know your ideal true vocation in life is when your, your deepest gladness, what gives you the greatest joy, meets the world's greatest need. That would give, would, your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. I was with a person last week who's in business. He loves being in business and making a lot of money. And that's his, and he goes, you know, he's, he's for the kingdom of God. He's got a great perspective. And uh, he, goes, he goes to the office at night and he prays over all the chairs with his wife. And he's got 130 employees. I was like so impressed. I'm like, God bless you. You know, God bless him. I mean, he loves it. That's like, is this, is like God made me. And I was like, I was like, that's beautiful. He's got a great perspective. I thought it was just so wonderful. But where it meets the world's greatest need. And part of his thing is to fund uh, you know, ministries to the poor around the world. I thought it was just a, it's a beautiful. And he tries to pastor all the people who works for him. All right, but let me go on. And I think David was somehow able to listen. How, how did David, where did he get the strength to step out? It's unbelievable, isn't it? But clearly, as you read the Psalms, and I could quote a few for, from, for you, he had a deep sense of an inner life with God. All right, but secondly, is, is listening through the exercise of spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to put a few up here for a second. I know, at least for me, if I don't get a lot of time alone, like in my case, a half day a week, a day a month, just away, you know what? I get so caught up in all the things happening to my life, I end up living everybody else's agenda for my life and not God's. I end up not living the true stuff about who God made me, but somebody else's, you know, this false self or whatever. I need to somehow, and we all, this is what makes us distinctly Christian, is that as Richard Foster says, spiritual disciplines are meant that you put yourself in a place where God can meet you. And so you're here on, 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 a, on a Sunday, and you're worshiping. It's a discipline. Maybe you didn't feel like it this Sunday, but you felt like it last Sunday. Discipline means I do it and I order my life around it because I know that in that place, sometimes God breaks through and meets me. And so I, don't, I just don't do number one. I bring what I'm listening to from within, and I bring it to God. I'm under the word of God, so I bring it under the discipline of Scripture. And I just love some of the, you know, I just listed a few here, but I mean, you've got things like celebration, which is today, silence. It's a discipline of silence. Prayer, fasting, scripture, journaling, meditation, silence twice, solitude, you know, spiritual direction, stewardship, study, worship, service, and, and I mean, list can go on. Dallas Willard is a great author. He's written a lot of books on spiritual discipline. And you see those bracelets, WWJD, a lot of people, what would Jesus do? And, and he, he said, you know what, throw the bracelet out if you don't do spiritual disciplines. Because you can't do what Jesus did if you don't have a life that's rooted in God. You will not have the, the, the walk with Jesus, John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You will bear much fruit if you abide in me. That, that the ability, friends, to listen from within and then to be able to follow through, friends, it takes God. The pressure is way too great to be able to break out of everyone else's plan for our lives. And let me close this last one real quickly. I'm going to call this you know, listen again with the help of significant others. Because as you know, someone could take this and go crazy. But the Bible's clear at places like Proverbs 15, 22. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. In you know, the abundance of counselors, there is much wisdom. I'm talking about I need people through whom I can process what's going on. And uh, 
but I also need people who can tell me honestly what they think of me. They can tell me honestly the, how I'm coming off and the impression I'm making on them and what it's like to be around me. You know, I thought of a good friend. Uh, we had a friend who really wanted to be a church planter. And for a variety of reasons, he was like supposed to be like a pastor, traditional church planter pastor. And those of us who knew him well, it was so obvious to us, it was a bad fit. That he just wasn't built for this. And, but he was very insistent and almost demanding, I must do it. And we didn't want to obviously tell him what to do with his life. But we had numerous conversations and trying to lay out to him what's, what's all involved in doing something like church planting and what it would mean for his personal life and some of his other desires and his family and all this other stuff. And eventually, he did see it. And now is in a whole different career and extremely happy serving Christ. I mean, and very fruitful serving Christ, very loving serving Christ. He does not even remember us telling him this is not a good idea. Who cares? Because he finally heard God on it. But he did have, he was listening somewhat with the help of some significant others. He had some friends around him talking to him about his God-given nature and what we observed in being his friend for 10, 15 years and saying it's not a good fit. You know, the, the Quakers have this thing in their culture called a clearing committee. And uh, what you can do is this, if you're a Quaker, that you, would call, you can call a small group of people together because you, you want some counsel. And this group of people comes together for three hours. They cannot give you a fix. They are prohibited from fixing you or giving you advice for three hours. All they can do is ask honest, open questions to help you listen to God's voice inside of you. They are supportive, but they're not invasive. As they quote, they avoid the unconscious violence we sometimes do in trying to save each other. And we respect each person's unique God-given nature. So they're living in community, but they're respecting people's God-given nature. But it's very important. We don't throw out this piece of listening with the help of significant others. That's why we're so committed to small groups and communities here and being a healthy church. But friends, do you, can you, you, as you look at this, do you see the challenge of what it will mean for you to live faithfully to the God-given life he's given? It is like David going up against Goliath. Oh, man. You know, Chuck Yeager was the first guy to break the sound barrier in an airplane. And he wrote, he wrote his autobiography. And I tell you, when I read it, I said, this is, this is a lot like what it means to, to, to be faithfully to your life. It's so difficult. I struggle with it myself. It is hard. The life process. But here's what he said. He goes, to, to break the speed of sound in an airplane, you have to fly 760 miles an hour. Now, prior to 1947, everyone who had done that had the, the plane, when it got to that point, blew into pieces. And the British had just tried it in early 1947, and it was, they called it the sound barrier because it was like this widespread bleak. It was almost like there was an invisible wall of air that when you hit it at that mileage, Mach 1, the plane would blow up. So the Americans, being good Americans, we're going to make a better airplane. We're going to try it. And so Chuck Yeager was a test pilot. And uh, the, the colonel over him said, Chuck, nobody knows for sure what's going to happen until you get there. Chuck, you'll be flying into the unknown. But on October 14th, 1947, he actually broke through the sound barrier, Mach 1. And as you know, now it's like nothing. It's common. 
Everyone breaks through it, but he was the first. And here's what he wrote after you broke through it. I was thunderstruck. After all the anxiety, breaking the sound barrier turned out to be like a perfectly paved speedway. After all the fear and anticipation, it was really a letdown. The unknown, in quotes, was really like just poking through jello. We are so afraid to change. We are so afraid to live faithfully to the life God has given us because who will be upset with us? Who will be disappointed? And we quote things like our race, our gender, our age, our educational background, whatever it might be that you quote on why it's so difficult, or you're vocationally trapped. So you know what? In your vocation, you can live faith. Even if you hate your job, you can live faithfully in it and around it to whom God has made you to be. And uh, you do have choices. You can be David and not Saul and get up and go out there to Goliath. But God's not going to force you or put a gun to your head to do it. And it's scary, but when we get there, we find that when we die, we find life. And God meets us in an incredible way. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you two questions to ask. I want the worship team to come on forward. And here's, oh yeah, okay. Here's what gonna, so here's our summary. Live faithfully to yourself is to be faithful to your God-given unique life. Remaining connected to people and yet not having your reactions or behaviors determined by them. That's really a mouthful the more you think about it. All right, but here's my two questions and applications. The first is this. Think of one small step God would have you take this week. I don't want 20 steps, just one. Now, don't go home and say I'm divorcing my spouse. Don't go to work and say I quit. Don't say I'm leaving your life, I'm becoming a Buddhist. All right? A small step that you can take this week to be faithful to who God has made you to be. Now, you'll notice, think of one small step God would have me take this week. And the second is, this week I will get time alone with God to listen to him. Because I hope you can see, if you, don't, if you don't get time to listen to God, you don't have a prayer. There is no way you can be a David and not get time apart to listen to God. I don't care if you listen to this tape 15 times. You need to find, when this week will you get some time alone to be quiet? I love, I, think, I believe journaling is very powerful. I encourage everyone here to journal. Even like one or twice a week, it's just powerful to write it on paper, what comes out. What you're feeling, what's going on inside, trying to listen to God's voice and who has he made me uniquely, my true God-given unique self. As you're thinking about that, I want to close with this. Think of David as someone who points us to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate warrior, the ultimate savior, the ultimate, ultimate deliverer. David was all that for Israelites. Jesus conquered Goliath. Goliath, in our case, who stands in front of us, are satanic powers. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. He disarmed the powers and principalities of darkness, making a public spectacle of them by the cross. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on our behalf. He has made the way so that, you know what? He's conquered Satan. He's made a way for forgiveness and pardon and the spirit to live within us that you do have the power to get up and live the life that God has given you to lead. Because of Jesus. You're not the first one. He's gone before us. And he grants us as a church his spirit. Do you realize what's in this room? You know, I wish at 16 or 17 I had heard a message and could have internalized the message like this. What it would have meant for my life. Do you realize the impact on people, the blessing for people, if we, by the grace of God, like David, will get up and live 
our true God-given life and be faithful to it.